So uh, today we're beginning a brand new series in the book of 1 Peter, and uh, we're going to be in uh, this book just going verse by verse, uh, looking at this letter from now um, all the way through the summer. And uh, today I want to just introduce the book, because I think it's a wonderful book for us to be looking at right now. Uh, The book of Peter is so relevant because Peter is uh, writing a letter to Christians living in the first century, and uh, there are people living in the Roman Empire where Christians are the minority, where uh, Christians are living amongst a a pagan uh, environment, and he's, he's telling them how to live faithful to God in a world like this, uh, how to live as Christians in the world, how to live faithful in, in a situation where you are in the minority. I think this is a really important book for us, like I said, because even though our situation may not be exactly the way uh, the situation was for them, it actually is becoming more and more so every day. And so... Um, We are Christians living in the late modern world, in the late modern Western world. And uh, there's a book by Richard Niebuhr where he talks about the the, uh, life cycle of the Christian movement. And he talks about it in terms of the seasons. And so he says, uh, you know, in the first century, uh, Christians were in winter. And so uh, these were the Christians that uh, Peter is writing to. It's a time when it was very difficult to be a Christian. They were being persecuted. Uh, They're in this pagan uh, Roman world where uh, they were very much the minority, small minority. It was wintertime. But then he says uh, Christianity moved into a spring, a springtime. And this is when uh, Christianity began to uh, grow exponentially. More and more people began to become Christians. It spread across the Roman world. Uh, They gained more power and influence in the pagan society. Springtime. And then he says Christianity moved into summer. And this was when uh, Christianity was made the the, uh, official religion of the Roman Empire. Rome was a a Christian nation. Uh, Christians very much had all the power, all the influence. It was very easy to be a Christian. You were in the majority. It was very uh, comfortable to live in the world at that time. But then he says, now we're moving into fall, winter, spring, summer, fall. And he says, now uh, Christians living in the West are in a situation where uh, Christianity is in decline, where we are, we once were in the majority, but now we're becoming the minority. Uh, Many people say that we're living in something called a post-Christian culture where uh, Christians are losing power and losing influence. So this is the age where we are living here uh, as Christians. And, uh, you know, I think he's right for the most part, although I I wouldn't say that Christianity is in decline throughout the entire world. Um, We're talking about the West here in the non-Western world. Christianity is growing. So like places like Asia and Latin America and you know, China and Africa, Christianity is still very much growing, growing very rapidly. But, but in the Western world, U.S., Europe, England, uh, we are living very much in a world where Christianity is on a decline, where we are becoming more and more every day the minority. And how do we live in a situation like this? And I know that, you know, for, this may be more or less true depending on where you live. So in places like uh, New York City and Chicago, Los Angeles, Portland, England, London, uh, you know, you, they might be more post-Christian than Batesville, Arkansas. But even in our little culture here, Christianity is still declining. And, and we need to learn what it means to live in a culture 
where we are losing power and losing influence. How do we do that? The latest research search out of the Barna Group says that there are two defining characteristics in terms of our cultural perception as Christians. When they polled people, most people view Christians either as irrelevant or extreme. So isn't that wonderful? Uh, we're either irrelevant, and if we're not, we're extremely dangerous. And this is kind of more and more becoming the perception of Christians. How do we live in a world like this? Uh, Francis Spufford, who's a, uh, he writes novels, but he's a Christian. He also lives in England. And this is how he describes what, what it's like for him to be a Christian in, in uh, you know, 2020 in England. He says, my daughter has just turned six. Sometime over the next year or so, she will discover that it, her parents are weird. We are weird because we go to church. He goes on to say we are weird because of our Christian values. How do we live in a world where we are weird? How do we live in a world where we are perceived as either irrelevant or extreme? Now, Christians uh, usually fall into two dangers uh, when we're in such an environment. We either A, withdraw, or we B, assimilate. So when you, you, when you kind of realize, like, this is a perception, one of the dangers is that you just withdraw. Like, fine, I'm checking out. I don't understand the world anymore. I'm just going to kind of hunker down, wait for Jesus to come back, kind of, you know, get into my own Christian little subculture, uh, you know, maybe throw bombs over the fence, you know, with the pagan people out there. We either, either withdraw, isolate, or maybe even worse, kind of see ourselves as in a fight with the culture. Or we assimilate, meaning we just, you know, we want to just, we want to be accepted, and so we just kind of blend in. We're no different than everybody else. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. Uh, when in America, you just adopt American values. And so Christians look like just about everybody else in the culture. But Peter gives us a third way. Peter doesn't want us to withdraw. He doesn't want us to assimilate. He wants us to learn how to navigate life in a, in a non-Christian world, in a secular world. He wants us to be faithful even though we're in the minority. And so Peter, uh, throughout this letter, is going to ask a series of questions about what it means to actually engage in the world. We don't want to withdraw. We don't want to assimilate. We want to engage. But how do we do that? And so he's, he, he asks questions about how do Christians relate to politics, for example, right? How do we vote? Are we Republican? Are we Democrat? Like, what, what are we? How do we engage politically? Do we engage politically? He asks questions about how we relate to our non-Christian friends and neighbors, and so how do we have relationships with people of other religions or of people of no religion? Can we be friends with them? If we are, like, what does that look like? And how do we engage with that? How do we re relate to entertainment in the modern world? Like, what kind of things can we partake of? Can we watch the same movies, listen to the same music, drink the same beverages as everybody else in the culture? And so Peter, this is a very practical book, and so Peter is, is helping us navigate uh, ourselves in a world that's quickly becoming post-Christian. But today what I want to do is I want to um, look just at the first couple verses because hear what Peter does. Before he asks all the questions, before he gets into the nitty-gritty, uh, Peter is going to give us a, uh, a governing metaphor. He's going to give us an image to help, help us understand ourselves in the world. And he says, if you're going to understand how to answer any of those questions and how to navigate life in a situation like this, you need to understand who you are. And what he says is that living in the world, all of us Christians, we are something called exiles. 
So can we all say that together through our masks? We are exiles. He's hearkening back to the Old Testament, to an idea where um, the Jewish people were um, defeated by Babylon. They were carted off to Babylon to be servants and slaves. And so they lived in a foreign land. And uh, Peter even calls Rome here Babylon, and he says, we are all exiles. And if we're going to learn how to navigate life, we've got to understand what it means for us to be exiles. So I want us to see three things today about what it means that we are exiles in the world, because this is going to frame everything else in this letter. Three things that, 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 that being in exile involves, and here's the first thing. As exiles, the first thing we need to understand is that although we live in the world, our home is somewhere else. An exile is a person whose home is somewhere else. We as Christians living in this world are people who uh, have a different homeland. And so uh, notice what Peter says here. He says uh, uh, he's the apostle Peter. He's writing to people in these various locations, and he calls them the elect exiles. And when you think about exile, I want you to think of somebody who is, they're living in a foreign land. They really are living in a foreign land, but they haven't given up their citizenships in their home country. And so what is an exile? Uh, Later on, Peter will call it a resident alien. And a resident alien, we understand this. You know, these are people that are, uh, on the one hand, they're not tourists. You know, they, they really are living in a particular place. They've got their green card or their resident visa, and uh, they really do live in a place. They, they've learned the language. Maybe they've bought property. They own a home. They've got jobs. They're, they're contributing members of society. They're here for the long term. Uh, they've learned the language. They've learned the culture. Uh, they have friends, and they have neighbors that they know in the foreign land. Uh, they're not like tourists, you know, just kind of looking at all the exotic destinations, you know, and, and learning through a translator. No, they actually live in the place. But on the other hand, their citizenship is still somewhere else. Although we, we live here and we, we know the language, we're part of the place, our citizenship is elsewhere. And what that means is that although people may like you and know you, they still think you're kind of weird. Because even though you live here, your values are different, your customs are different, because you are not from there. This is our situation as Christians. Although we're here, our home is somewhere else. And what that means is that we are pilgrims and sojourners. We are traveling through this world. We're on our way home. Now, as a Christian, on the one hand, when you come to know Jesus, you're home. And you may feel that, you know, I'm forgiven of my sins and I know Jesus Christ, I have purpose in my life. On the one hand, to come to know Jesus is to come home. But at the same time, to come to know Jesus is to begin a journey, isn't it? It's to, be, it's to begin a journey towards your ultimate homeland. And where is our home? Our home is in God. Uh, God is our ultimate home and one day we're going to return and make this world a uh, home for us. But in the meantime, we're travelers. We're pilgrims. We don't get too comfortable. It's kind of like a situation in which you're uh, on vacation. You know, you, you go on vacation, and you might find a comfortable hotel in which it's really nice, nice and cozy, or maybe you go camping, and some of you, when you go camping, you're able to set the place up so that it feels really cozy, but you're never fully, it doesn't fully feel comfortable uh, t- completely because you're not home. And, you know, you go home, and you spend lots of time uh, you know, making your bed the way it, it feels just right for you and, and the decorations and everything. 
Home is where you fit. It's where everything is right. And as a Christian, this world is not your home. All right, well, what does that mean? Well, on the one hand, uh, what it means is that we enjoy the world, but we don't get too comfortable. We enjoy the world, but we don't get too comfortable in the world. Right, there's a lot of things, you know, you, you work and you go on vacation and you save for retirement. You're enjoying the world, but as Christians, we're never supposed to get too comfortable here. And for some of you, you're just way too comfortable in the world. You know, it's possible to get so absorbed in this world and so busy in the world that you forget why you're here. You forget your purpose in life and where you're going. You know, you get so busy with work or you get so busy remodeling the house uh, you get so busy with marriage and raising kids and saving for retirement and uh, moving up the corporate ladder that you get so absorbed and, and so attached to this world that you forget your purpose here. And to be in exile means that you always have a light grip on the world. You're always, yeah, you enjoy this world, but you have sort of a loose grip on it. Uh, Tim Keller, uh, who's a pastor, one of, one of my favorite pastors, um, recently he got pancreatic cancer which for me, I don't really, never met him, but for me, this was such a big deal to hear that he had cancer. And he put out online this long list of um, prayer requests that he wanted everybody to pray for him. And uh, among that list were things that were very normal, like pray that, you know, the, the chemo works and pray that I get healed. But he had one prayer request that I thought, thought was so insightful. He said, pray for Kathy and me that we use this opportunity to be weaned from the joys of this world and to desire God's presence above all. He says, I want to be weaned from the joys of the world. He's not saying it's wrong to enjoy the world, but he says there are certain things that give us an opportunity to be weaned from them. You know, you kind of loosen your grip on them. You enjoy them, but you don't, you don't need them so much. This is what it means to have your home somewhere else. Uh, this also means that although we care deeply about the world, we are not crushed with the disappointment when the world does not go our way. So on the one hand, we care deeply about this world. To be in exile and to have your home somewhere else doesn't mean that you check out and say, you know what? I'm just visiting this planet. You know, I'm gonna go to heaven one day. This world can go to hell in a handbasket. You know, it's not that we just disengage from the world. We still deeply care about the world. We should care about the environment. We shouldn't just trash the environment. We should care about the, the, the problems in our nation. We should care about racism and poverty and things like that. We should, we should care about who's elected into office, right? We care deeply about the world. In fact, in the Old Testament, when the Jews were in exile in Babylon, Jeremiah came to Daniel and the rest of the exiles, and they were thinking, like, we're in Babylon. Does this just mean we just hunker down and wait for, you, for God to take us out of here? Jeremiah said, no, here's what I want you to do. I want you to settle in, plant gardens, grow families. And then he said, and seek the well-being of Babylon and pray to the Lord on its behalf. That's what we're supposed to do. Even though our home is somewhere else, we don't check out. We pray for our nation and we pray for the problems and we engage in making this world a better place. But we are not crushed with disappointment when the world does not go our way. We're not home yet. And so, you know, I may be disappointed when my, you know, particular president isn't elected into office, but I'm not crushed by that. This is not my home. When things don't go my way or when, you know, when I experience tragedy or setbacks in this life, I'm not crushed by those things because I know I'm just a pilgrim. I'm just passing through. This world is not my ultimate home. 
And so to be in exile, number one, means that although you engage and you enjoy, you don't get absorbed and you're not crushed by the things in this life. Now, second of all, uh, another thing that it means to be in exile is that although we live in the world, number two, our allegiance is somewhere else. Uh, to be in exile means that your ultimate allegiance is somewhere else. So notice what he says here. He calls them exiles, and he says, you are chosen by God the Father by the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification by the Spirit, this is verse two, for the obedience of Jesus Christ. Now notice uh, what he does here is, is he, he mentions here provinces within the Roman Empire where these folks are living. He says, you're exiles and you're scattered throughout the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are all provinces in the Roman world. And the Roman world was all under the authority of the empire, which, emperor, which is Caesar. And although all of these uh, provinces, they had a, a certain freedom, you know, they could govern, you know, with a lot of, of freedom, the one thing they all had to do was bow the knee to Caesar. Caesar in the Roman Empire, no matter where you were, whether you were at Rome proper or, you know, living in one of these little providences, Caesar was Lord. You bowed the knee to Caesar alone. He was the ultimate authority. You gave your allegiance to Caesar. Now, beyond that, you could do whatever you wanted. But he was the ultimate object of allegiance. And what Peter is doing here is he's being a little bit subversive. He's saying if you're a Christian, even if you're a Christian in the Roman Empire, you give obedience to Jesus. In other words, even though you're living in the Roman world, he's saying your proper Lord is Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. And what that means is that no matter where you're living in the Roman world or no matter where you're living in the world, whether it's Batesville, the U.S., or somewhere else, our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus Christ. He's our Lord. We give our obedience to him. He is the one who disciples us. He is the one who, uh, who tells us what to do. We give obedience to him because he has our ultimate allegiance. Now, uh, what this means, or, or number one, what it doesn't mean is that we discard all our other earth, earthly allegiances. Yeah, Jesus Christ is Lord, but th this doesn't mean that we disregard all other allegiances or authorities in this world. And so, for example, um, we live in this world, and what that means is that we should uh, honor and obey our, our government and uh, the, the, the laws of the land. In fact, later on, Peter would say, uh, honor the, the civil magistrates. And translated for us, this means, you know, honor the government, obey the laws of the land. Yeah, Jesus is Lord, but you still got to obey the speed limit. You know, I've got a problem with obeying the speed limit, by the way. And uh, I, I try to do well, but I do drive a lot, pr pretty fast. And, uh, you know, if, if I'm caught by a, a, a policeman and they pull me over and say, you know, you were speeding, uh, you know, I'm going to write you a ticket. I don't say, well, Jesus Christ is Lord. I obey him. I don't have to obey the speed limit. No, <laughs> we still have to obey the laws of the land. We still have to honor the civil magistrates. And, and we also should honor the, uh, the culture and the, the social mores of the land. You know, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you have to be weird or something. And you need to just kind of disregard, you know, the, the, the culture around you. Uh, you know, I, I'm not from Batesville, and I moved Batesville to Batesville sev several years ago. 
And uh, when I moved here, I tried to fit in. And so what that meant was that my kids now say, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. Yes, sir, no, sir. It means that when people call me Brent, they don't just call me Brent, they call me Brother Brent. You know, and there's certain things that come with living in the South. And it's smart of me to try to fit in. And uh, it's, as Christians, we ought to try to, whether you're a missionary going to a foreign country, you try to fit in. You learn the culture. Uh, you try not to stick out like a sore, sore, sore thumb. And, so, and as Christians, you know, we can kind of acclimate, acclimate to whatever culture we're part of. But it also means that our allegiance to Jesus overrides our, all of our other allegiances. So it does mean that sometimes our commitment to Jesus will bring us into conflict in this world. It may bring you into conflict with the governing authorities. And so in the, in the ancient world, you remember uh, the Babylonians, uh, there was one time when the, the official authorities said, you must bow down to this golden image, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they engaged in civil disobedience. They said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to break the law because the law was contradicting the very clear teachings of God. And so it was okay for them to break the law because of their allegiance to Jesus. Um, later on in that book, uh, Daniel, there was an official law made that people couldn't pray in public, and uh, Daniel uh, said, no, I, I, need, I need to pray to God. And so he opened his window and he prayed to the God of Israel in front of everybody and he broke the law. In the New Testament, there was a time when the New Testament church was told by the authorities that they, they weren't allowed to preach in public. And you remember what they said? They said, you judge it for yourselves, but we must obey God rather than man. And so if the governing authorities contradict the clear teachings of Jesus, we must engage in civil disobedience. We can break the law. Uh, a modern example might be Dietrich Bonhoeffer during the Nazi regime. Uh, he was part of the confessing, confessing church. And uh, what they did is they actually um, broke the laws of the Nazis. And they didn't turn in the Jews uh, because they believed that they had to honor a higher authority. This, this meant that they could break the law. So sometimes this does bring us into conflict with the official authorities, but most of the time, it brings us into conflict in a much more subtle way. It brings us into conflict with our culture. And what this means is that no matter what our culture says, no matter what direction or what direction the tide is moving in the culture, we must obey Jesus Christ above everything else. No matter what the culture says, we must follow Christ. And sometimes this means that we are a counterculture. Um, I love what Tim Keller says. He says that in the, in the ancient world, uh, the Romans were uh, promiscuous with their body and stingy with their money. And Christians came in and they were countercultural. They were promiscuous with their money and stingy with their bodies. And so... Sometimes your allegiance to Jesus Christ will put you into conflict with the culture, and you must always obey him rather than the culture. We must be different. Sometimes we need to be weird if we're going to obey Christ. This uh, might mean that you, it brings you into conflict with your political allegiance. And sometimes your allegiance to Jesus will make voting very complicated. Um, I was, there was a story, uh, an interview with an African-American guy 
that I heard um, several weeks ago now, but he was talking about being a Christian in an African-American home, and he said, uh, you know, when I was growing up, a black evangelical, it was just assumed that you voted Democrat, that if you were a Christian, you voted Democrat. And, and, and he says, that as an African-American evangelical, I couldn't imagine somebody being a Christian and voting Republican. I just couldn't imagine that. I had no category for that. But then he says, I, I, you know, when I got older, I went to seminary, I met a lot of white evangelicals. He says, I found their experience was totally different than mine. He says, they grew up just the opposite. They grew up that believing that if you were a Christian, a, a good Christian, you voted Republican. And they couldn't imagine being a, a real Christian and voting Democrat. And then the interviewer said, well, how do you vote now? And the black guy said, it's very complicated. <laughs> because your allegiance to Jesus Christ will make it very difficult for you to fit in a lot of places in this world. It makes voting complicated and living in the world complicated because you're, you know, you're a stranger, you're a pilgrim, and your allegiance is to Jesus above all. We'll see what this means a little bit later as we move on in the sermon series, but to be a pilgrim means that your ultimate authority comes from outside of culture, outside of your political party, outside of yourself, Jesus Christ is the one we must obey. Thirdly, uh, being, being in exile means that our identity comes from somewhere else. The third thing that Peter says is your identity comes from somewhere else if you're a Christian. He says, we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God, sanctification of the spirits, and sprinkling with his blood. Now notice Peter says three things about their identity here. They're exiles, they're chosen by God, and they're sprinkled with the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This is identity language. And what I want you to see is that being exiles gives you a new identity. It's an identity that is from somewhere else. Your identity is wrapped up with uh, Jesus Christ and the election of God. You are now chosen by God. You are now sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. You are now a child of God in fellowship with the triune living God, and that is your identity now. Now, what I want you to see about this is that, again, what this doesn't mean is that we lose our earthly identity. Uh, notice what Peter does here. It's really interesting. He says, on the one hand, he, he names all these particular places where they're from, these ethnic geographic regions. He says, you're from uh, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. He still is saying, look, you still are from where you're from. Being a Christian doesn't erase your ethnic identity, right? And so if you're black, uh, Christianity doesn't make you non-black. If you're white, Christianity doesn't make you non-white. If you're white, it doesn't make you non-white. When you become a Christian, you don't, become, you don't lose your status as an American. You're still an American. Uh, if you're a Christian, you still kind of are in the same social class. You're still college-educated. There's still a lot of things about your identity that are still true of you when you become a Christian. Christianity doesn't erase any of that. But what it does is it gives you a deeper identity. It says that, yes, you're still an American, but, but deeper than being an American, you are now a, a Christian. And what that means is that when you become a Christian, you are Ameri you're a Christian first and American second. You are a Christian first and college-educated second. 
You are a Christian first and Asian American or African American second. You are a Christian first, you see. Being Christian is your, the deepest part of your identity, and everything else is peripheral. And what, what this means is that being in exile gives you unity with other people that you might not have otherwise. Even if a person is from Cappadocia or Pontius Galatia or from Asian, Asia or Africa or somewhere else, you have more in common with that person than you do have some, with someone of your own race. You are Christian first. That brings a unity with people that are very, very different than you. And so if there's somebody sitting next to you through your mask, just look at them and say, you are different. At home, look at somebody and say, you are different. Now say, you are very, very different. And now say, but we are the same. If you're a Christian, the truest thing about you is that you are chosen by God, sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. What that means is that unites you with people on the deepest level who share that same identity. And so although we are scattered throughout the world as Christians, we are bound together. We are united together. We are family with one another, even though we are vastly different. It brings incredible unity. But what I also want you to see is that this brings a bedrock security, this new identity. It brings bedrock security, and this is important because in, in a post-Christian world, and this may not be true now, but it will increasingly be the case, we will be marginalized. Uh, Christians are going to use, lose power and influence. And if you are insecure, this will make you angry. If you're insecure, you will hate being on the margins. You're gonna wanna fight, you're gonna wanna get angry, you're gonna wanna get defensive. And this is why it's so important to understand your identity, your bedrock solid identity. You don't have to be insecure, even, even in exile, even on the margins, because what Peter says is that you are chosen by God. Yes, you're in exile, but know this, you are chosen by Almighty God. You are sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying you are loved more than you know. When Peter says you are chosen, you got to understand this is, this is a statement of grace. He's not saying we are choice. He's saying we are chosen. Do you understand the difference? Uh, he, he's not saying you are so great and you are so wonderful and that's why God chose you. He's saying, no, 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 Dis in spite of who you are, you are chosen by God. And uh, most people say he is drawing on Old Testament language here. This is the identity of the people of Israel. And so do you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, the Lord looks at Israel and he says, I have chosen you. He says, and above all the other people in the world, I have set my love upon you. And the people of Israel say, but Lord, why have you chosen us? And he says, oh, I didn't choose you because, he tells them why he didn't choose them. He says, I didn't choose you because you were more in number than other, other people in the world or because you were better than other people in the world or because you were smarter than other people in the world. He says, in fact, you were weaker and smaller and, and lesser than everybody else in the world. And they say, well, why did you choose us? And then God says, I chose you because I loved you. He says, I set my love on you because I loved you. I love you because I love you. Now somebody says, well, that's circular reasoning. I love you because I love you. Yes, it's circular reasoning, but it's the only basis for true love, isn't it? If your spouse asks you today or tomorrow, 
the question, do you love me? I want you to know that that's a dangerous question. And there's two ways you can go with that question. There's the wrong way. And you could say, honey, I, yes, I love you. Uh, of course I love you. And, and maybe your spouse will say, well, why do you love me? You could say this. You could say, well, I love you because you're smart, you're beautiful, you know, you're, you work hard, and you've got a nice figure or whatever. You could say all of these things. But I want you to know that if you go in that direction, you're actually going to lose ground very quickly. That's the wrong way to go because they might say, well, what if I lose my figure? What if I lose my job? What if something happens to me? Well, see, then your, your love is conditional. It's because of something. The only way to answer that question is I love you because I love you. I chose you because I chose you. And that there is a bedrock solid basis for love and identity. And what Peter is saying here is he's saying, you're an exile in this world, but you need to understand your identity. You are a people who are loved by God. You are a people who are chosen by God. You are a people who are valued by God, not because you're great or because you obey or because of anything else. You, you are, God loves you because he loves you, because he chose you. And this is something that gives you a sense of security and, and humility and boldness, even while you're on the margins of a secular world. Notice the last thing he says is that we are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. One of the ways we know that God loves us is because of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ became an exile for us. Uh, he was at home with God the Father, and he left his home, and he, and he became an exile in the world. And have you ever noticed that throughout the Gospels, it never says that Jesus was home? It never said that Jesus invited people into his home or that he made dinner for people in his home. It never says that he had a conversation with people in his home because Jesus Christ didn't have a home. He had no place to lay his head. He was in exile. And ultimately, he was crucified outside the city gates, utterly separated from his true home, God the Father. And Jesus Christ became an exile so that we might belong. He, he became an exile so that one day we might come home. And so we are people that are deeply loved by God. And so this is just the first uh, little section of this letter. I'm, I'm super excited to get into this because Peter gets very practical. He's going to answer some really good uh, questions about what it means for us to be living in the real world right now where we might be a minority. But the first thing we need to understand, just to frame all of these questions as a basis for everything else, we need to get that we are exiles. Our home is somewhere else. Our allegiance is somewhere else. Our identity is somewhere else. Yes, we're engaged in the world. Yes, we own property and we have friends and neighbors and we, we have places where we're actually living, but we are strangers and sojourners here. here. And the final thing I want to say is that we are people that have hope in this world. And I was going to make that a fourth point, but I just wanted to have a three-point sermon, and it's getting really long. But next week, we'll get into what it means to be exiles with hope. And so let's pray together. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, this passage that you give us that defines uh, who we are in this world. I pray, God, that, that if we are getting too comfortable and, and attached to this world, that you might remind us that our home is somewhere else. God, if we are, are uh, 
becoming too assimilated and formed and discipled by our culture, I pray that you would remind us that our allegiance is somewhere else. And God, if we're feeling marginalized and insecure, I pray that you would remind everybody today that our bedrock solid identity is somewhere else. Lord, we are chosen exiles. We are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you for that new identity. And God, we pray that as we continue to look at this book, that you would give us wisdom, that you would make us salt and light in this world, God, that you would help us to be a transformative influence on the culture. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.